Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, uh, turn open to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in front of you in the pew. Just turn over to, I think it's page 238. Uh, if you're new at reading your Bible, the big number there is the chapter, the little number is the verse. So when we say 16 verse 7, that's big as 16, little 7. I don't want to make any assumptions like that. Uh, it's been a great book. Impressive uh, is something we all hope that our resumes, our homes, and our families are like. Impressive is what we hope our wedding announcements, our Facebook profiles, and your grandkids are like. Impressive is what we know some people are. Uh, in our culture, celebrities, athletes, entertainers, maybe a generation ago, um, polit politicians, uh, civic leaders, authors, a little further beyond that would have been doctors and explorers and pilots, even preachers at one point. Even beyond that, back to when our parents and grandparents were really impressive to us. Impressive are all these kinds of things. What do you know that's impressive? What are they like? Are they capable? Are they beautiful? Are they confident? Are they competent? Do they evoke within you admiration and awe? Are they imposing? And that's what the dictionary says is the definition of impressive. When was the last time you were impressed and by what? Do you know, I just realized this this week, that Washington, D.C. was deliberately designed to be a very impressive city. Anyone ever been to Washington, D.C.? Yeah. So they've deliberately designed it to, to communicate an attitude to the ambassadors and national dignities of competence and confidence, power and prestige. Even South Orange County was designed to be impressive, both in its layout and its location. Everything about it was thoughtfully planned to communicate this idea, to give you the impression that when you live here, you, are, you have arrived, that this is the good life. I mean, it worked on me about 18 months or so ago when I was candidating to be the senior pastor here. I remember coming right off the 5 freeway here and coming down La Paz, and to my right, one of the thousand Starbucks in our neighborhood, and, and to my left, there was a gas station, but this gas station had a beautiful water fountain in front of it. And I thought, we don't have any gas stations in La Habra with a water fountain, you know, and if we do, it's because a water main has burst, you know, and that's a completely different impression, but the point simply being is we are people who are impressed with the, the confident, the competent, the bold, the beautiful, all the what we call eye candy. Now, on the other hand, we do live in the age of Google and YouTube and the ever-present camera on our smartphones, and there is no mask anyone can hide behind. By the way, if you have a phone, turn it on mute right now. That might be distracting to me. Uh, we know that people are not always what they present themselves to be, and we're a little bit tired. It's a bit played out, this, this fabricated facade of everything being put together. So what's impressive now in our culture is being authentic, right? We are impressed with being real. Right? Fair trade coffee, loft living, ecotourism, organic foods, that's what life's all about, being real, back to the basics. We don't want our celebrities dolled up and made up on magazine covers anymore. We want them unphotoshopped, without makeup, like they just crawled out of bed, and even if it takes a hairstylist, we want to think they don't have a hairstylist. 
We are impressed not by how different they are from us. We are now impressed with how similar to us they're like. We're impressed with people who are comfortable in their own skins. And most impressive are people who don't try at all to be impressive to us. So what does this say about us as human beings when we're impressed by both sides of the spectrum? It it simply communicates that as human beings, we were made to be impressed. We were designed to be awed by something, to to have feelings evoked of us of awe and inspiration. That's the way God made us. That's why books like 1 Samuel are so fantastic, because there's so much in this book to be impressed by. If if it's not the the bold, uh, brave prophet Samuel who leads by conviction and integrity, it's this humble Hannah who, who pleads with the most sincerest sincerity, or the simple shepherd boy David who grows up to be Israel's greatest king in history. There is so much in this book to be impressed by, but that is precisely the reason we can actually miss the most impressive thing about 1 Samuel. And that's why I think this morning our writer, 1 Samuel, puts a very important uh, pause in the text because whenever we're reading the Old Testament, if we are constantly impressed by the characters and the narrative of the text, but not impressed by the God that they are describing, we're missing the point of what the Old Testament's about. When we read the Old Testament, we shouldn't walk away going, man, that David, I just want to be like him, or that Samuel, that guy's fearless, or Hannah just had a wonderful prayer life. When we read the Old Testament, we should walk away going, I can't believe God is that way. I didn't realize he's that gracious. I didn't know he was that forgiving. He takes sin seriously. Every time we read the Bible, we should walk away being impressed with the God of the Bible. And that's why 1 Samuel and other books like that can be dangerous because there's so much impressive things in it that we get caught up on the character or the narrative and not the God that those characters and narratives are about. And so it's almost as if he recognizes there's been a lot of impressive things in this book so far and there's a lot of impressive things to come. So let's just stop and just step back for a moment and have a clear sense of reality and the one, probably one of the most key texts, certainly of 1 Samuel, maybe of the Bible, it's 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7. Let me read it. The Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, far from being just a great verse that Christian parents can tell their kids about dating, you know, beauties on the inside kind of thing, far from being one of these kind of pithy proverbs that we might put in a Christian fortune cookie, what this verse is communicating is some fundamental reality of how God's economy works. The author's pulling back the curtain of eternity and saying, do you see how God executes His plans and purposes in this world? This is one of those significant things. And so this morning, we want to be reminded to be impressed by a God who does things radically different than we ever would. We want to be impressed by a God who is truly impressive in the way that He works. Specifically, we want to be impressed by a God who uses surprising people in verses 1 through 12. And then secondly, surprising people are used by God. One emphasizes the surprising people, the other, the God who uses them. With that, let's pray and jump into our study. Father, we thank You for You are truly an impressive God. 
And if we were more impressed by you, I think we would see reality more clearly in, re- in the way it ought to be. Father, we thank you that we saw an impressive performance of, of the book of Acts the last two nights here at this church. And Lord, what was most phenomenal is that the impression we walked away wasn't so much about the story and narrative, but the God who oversees all of history and all the events therein. Father, help us always to keep our eye and see you for who you are, for you truly are an impressive God. And we pray that you are impressed upon us even this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read the first uh, seven verses of our chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Verse 2, and Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? Verse 5, And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Well, as we open up our chapter, anyone who has ever cared for the spiritual well-being of another, whether you're a parent or a small group leader or just a friend, uh, watching someone go cold to the things of God is certainly a heartache, and that way you can relate with Samuel. For Samuel, it was no different. Uh, We don't know how much time has passed between chapter 16 and chapter 15, but apparently it's been enough time, maybe too much time, and Samuel is being, in a sense, rebuked by God for his grief. He says, how long will you continue to grieve over Saul, whom I've rejected? Certainly, Samuel would have been very encouraged by the next phrase he he hears coming from the Lord's mouth. I have provided for myself a king. Remember last week we talked about the monarchy is not over. Samuel felt when he rejected Saul that his life's work was now over. The monarchy's a flush. It didn't work out. God scrapped it all. Everything I gave my life up for was over, but God reminds him here in chapter 16, he's not done. The monarchy's not over. He says, rise, fill your horn, because I've provided for myself a king. Samuel's life work was not a waste after all. Now, we see the tension between Samuel and Saul in verses 2 through 4 both in Samuel's concern that if he goes out to anoint someone else, Saul will have him executed, and by the concern of the elders of this little village of Bethlehem. As they see Samuel the prophet, surely they would have known about the rift between the the prophet of God and the king, and now they're concerned, is he going to bring some of that trouble to us? Is he trying to build a coalition? We don't want to get involved in this, so the elders go out to greet Samuel. They probably felt a little like we do when we're driving and you look in your rearview mirror and you see a police officer behind you. (laughs) You're glad we have police, but you wish they would be a little bit further from you. Or maybe when I call your home 
oh, pastor's on the phone. Are we in trouble? What, what did you do? I didn't do anything. Why is he calling? I don't know. They kind of didn't know why Samuel was coming to them. So they asked him, do you come peaceably? And he says that he did. Now, verse 7 is our focus before we get there. It, does, it seems that Samuel, perhaps because of the situation with Saul, has lost a little bit of his prophetic edge. In other words, there are signs in what we've just read that Samuel's not quite the man he used to be. It seems like he's been in his grief a bit too long. Although Saul had given every reason why he should have been forfeited of the crown, why he is actually the rejected king, Samuel has a hard time getting over it. Perhaps Samuel is losing his grip on the understanding that God can be trusted, that he has sovereign plans and purposes. And now that he's seen Saul uh, shipwreck it, maybe Samuel himself is losing grip on his faith. Friends, as we look at Samuel, we, we need to learn that we need to reject what God rejects. He has his reasons. Samuel, like us, is so limited in his perspective and his assessments about life, but God sees fully and God sees truly, and when He makes a judgment call and asks us to trust Him, it is with this in mind that we need to be able to trust Him, recognizing that our short-sighted wants and desires, our limited perspective of what we want to see come to pass isn't the whole picture, but that God sees everything. And when he says he wants this rejected or he wants this embraced, even if we may not see the reasons behind it, this chapter is a reminder that he is a good God who's omniscient and good and can be trusted. And secondly, Samuel, the bold prophet, the fierce man of God, who never feared anything now, is shown fearing Saul. Samuel, who never feared man's will, only feared to do the Lord's will, is now afraid of Saul's will. What will he do if he finds out that I've left? He'll kill me. And then finally, we see down in verse 6, that Samuel is impressed by Jesse's older son, the oldest son, Eliab. And for every good reason, you can imagine the strapping, handsome, good-looking Mediterranean man, bronze skin, built because he's out working in the field. And Samuel sees him and says, surely this is God's anointed. If you're a note taker, write down chapter 9, verse 2, chapter 10, verse 23. And the reason I highlight those is because we've seen, we've been here before when we saw Saul, another Mediterranean man with bronze skin, taller than everyone, handsome, and everyone thought this was the Lord's anointed, surely. And that was a train wreck. So it seems like Samuel is losing a little bit of that prophetic edge. Even Samuel is not a man we need to be too unduly impressed by. Even Samuel begins to falter. Life takes its toll. Grief can change us if we're not careful. But we still see that Samuel is being used not because of his impressiveness. We've seen three instances where he's not quite the man he used to be. He's not quite as impressive. He's still being used because of God's faithfulness. And Samuel, at probably a, the point in his life when he was least impressive, God uses him to really do the work that makes Samuel's legacy count, anointing Israel's greatest earthly king. Verse 7 reads, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. 
Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. One of, if not the key verse of 1 Samuel, and this has been the theme all along throughout the book. Every time we see a situation, whether it was in chapter 2 when Eli didn't quite see what was going on with Hannah, or next week when Goliath doesn't see what's going on when he sees David, we seem to not be able to see correctly. Now, if you recall last week in 1 Samuel 15, I had said that the, 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 the driving word that took us through the chapter was the Hebrew word for listen. It appeared eight times. Eight times this idea of listen that led to obedience was throughout the chapter. In chapter 16, it's not a coincidence that this driving word behind this chapter is the word for see. Nine times the word for see appears. I don't think it's a coincidence that in chapters 15 and 16, the chapters where one king is rejected and another is provided, the driving themes behind them have been listen and see with the implication that God's people don't do both very well at all. So imagine if you were one of the very first people, the people of God, reading the book of 1 Samuel, reflecting on the monarchy and how you got to this point, and you read this in the language and you're seeing these words pop out, you go, huh, you think there's a theme here, we don't seem to listen very well, and we don't see the way we ought to see, maybe God's just saying, trust me, because I hear it all, and I see it all, and I can be trusted. That's just not something for the original hearers to hear, that's something for us to hear. Because so many of our decisions of our lives, so many things we do are based on the things we hear and the things we see and how we process it. And so often we're learning it's not the true story. God says, I know. I'm omniscient. I'm good. Trust me. So in verse 7, the Lord says, it's not Eliab, as impressive as he might be. And we see in verses 8 through 11 that it's not any other of Jesse's sons. And, and imagine how discouraging that must be for Jesse. Look, I've got Abinadab. If Abinadab's not good-looking kingly enough, here's another one. Or if that's not one, how about the other and the other and the other until it gets to this awkward point in verse 11 where there's Samuel going, you sure? This is God told me clearly one of your sons, are these all of them? Well, we know the story. We know that there's one missing, but David's own family doesn't think he's impressive enough to present to the prophet. Ah, just, uh, we don't have anyone to watch the sheep. Just got David go out there. He clearly can't be the guy, so we'll, he'll watch the sheep, and we'll show up. And Samuel says, are you, we are not going to do anything. We're not going to eat. We are going to wait here. Go get the youngest. Go get the smallest. Go get the most unimpressive of your sons and bring them here. And immediately in verse 12, as soon as David walks in, the Lord says to Samuel, that's the one. Rise up and anoint him. See, this is constantly, constantly, constantly what God's picture of what He's trying to do, His pattern of using the surprising and unlikely to accomplish His purposes. Just like Rahab the prostitute, just like Gideon's small army, they're all parables of what God is doing through the nation of Israel, a nation of slaves to thwart the mighty power of Egypt. And that theme continues in the New Testament as we saw Friday and Saturday night, a small band of disciples who thwart and overthrow the power of Rome. Why does he do this? Why does he do this? Because he wants to make it clear who the actor is. He wants to make it clear who's calling the shots, that it's he as sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, good God. 
And we see this pattern all through Genesis, through Revelation. We see this pattern throughout church history. And if you listen and look, you'll see this pattern in your own life. Now, keep your finger in 1 Samuel and, and go with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. Paul is, is writing to a, a, a wonderful church, wonderful because they were as far disconnected to how God wanted them to live uh, as they could be. So if you're struggling to live for God, read 1 Corinthians. You'll find all of your hang-ups and struggles there too. Paul writes this in chapter 1, verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, you can go back to 1 Samuel. I want to read another verse parallel to this in the book of Jeremiah the prophet, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I de delight, declares the Lord. Let me ask you something. Do you think about others based too much on their outward appearance? Are you impressed by things you shouldn't be? Are you not impressed by things you should? Even the Samuel prophet was prone to judge by appearances. And this reveals to us how prone we are to make the same mistakes. This reveals to us our need to have biblical wisdom and discernment as we see in our lives the things that matters most when and where. And this is a strong message for those of us who live in South Orange County, where image seems to be everything. What we are learning is image can mean nothing, right? Now, I, I want to I balance that, that point with a little bit of a counterpoint. The point isn't that God opposes uh, fine looks and beauty as, as if ugliness were next to godliness. That's not the point at all here. If it were, we wouldn't see verse 12. Verse 12 talks about David, that he was a, a ruddy, he probably had a, a reddish complexion, either red hair or talking about his bronze skin, and handsome, right? So, so obviously, God does not have a problem with good looks and out, out, outward appearances, the issue is, the point is, rather that external appearances neither qualifies or disqualifies someone for God's purposes. It simply doesn't matter. What matters is the inward orientation of the heart. What matters so often are the things that don't greet our eyes on the first impression or come to our ears. What matters are the things that are a little bit more difficult to discern and figure out. You know, I often talk to people about looking for churches, and I just wish I could tell them, please make your criteria for a church different than LA Fitness. Because I say, well, what are you looking for in a church? Well, I'm looking for uh, good music, lots of programs, friendly people, and plenty of parking. Well, that's down at LA Fitness. You can get that there. What are you looking for in a church? Please make it different than Gold's Gym. I'm looking for people pursuing holiness, people who want to hear the Word of God, a people willing to hold each other accountable to sin, a people who will be something for the glory of God. That's what you want to find in a local church. 
I think those come from that book too, by the way. So look at that. The point is simply this. We often use criteria to judge things that are not to be used. We do the same thing with people. Don't confuse that because you know details about someone for thinking you know someone. We do it all the time. We, we confuse because I know details about you that I know you. And I miss, and we miss moments of ministry and opportunity all the time. You ever see it on the news when some, somebody in a neighborhood just kind of goes ballistic and does something outrageous, and they interview the neighbors? What do all the neighbors say? Wow, oh, never saw that coming. Seemed like a nice guy. I guarantee you, if they were looking and listening, they would have saw it coming. The problem is we just stay on the surface. We, we stay on the image that's presented. And 1 Samuel 16 is a call to get beyond those things. Folks, this is the key of understanding how God judges the human heart. God doesn't look on our performance. God doesn't look on our behaviors. God doesn't look on those things, however good they might be. He looks on the heart. And He judges us by that. And according to Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, all of us have been found guilty. All of us have gone astray, everyone to their own way. And God needs to provide a remedy. God needs to provide an uns- a surprising solution to the problem because we could not do it. And so God sent His Son, and we get to see a little glimpse of that in the second point. Surprising people are used by God. Look at that, verses 13 to 23. So the first emphasis was that God uses these surprising, unimpressive people. The second point is that these surprising, unimpressive people are used by God Himself. Let me read to you verses 13 through the rest of the chapter. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. This is where one of those instances where our verse divisions are not so helpful because we can sometimes miss that. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. That's there for a reason. And an evil spirit from the Lord tormented Saul, and Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. Verse 17, So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Let me just stop right there um, and, and do something I rarely do in a sermon, and that's just kind of talk about a technical note here, especially if you're familiar with 1 Samuel. Uh, you might be thinking, how does this work out? Because at the end of chapter 17, after David slays Goliath, Saul is acting like he has no idea who this young man David is. But yet here in chapter 16, Saul's clearly aware of who David is, so what's going on? Real quick, uh, the, 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 what's happening is that The way we chronicle history in modern culture, linear time, progression of events, is not the way in antiquity all cultures recorded history. All cultures, some cultures in antiquity recorded history by themes, themes that were important that they would then weave into the narrative to highlight a point they're trying to make. In this case, David's anointedness by God. And so most scholars recognize that verses 14 to 23 take place after the fact of David and Goliath. Okay, 
And since there is nothing that links 14 and 13 other than, again, this thematic, the Lord's Spirit came on David and then it departed from Saul, there's nothing that links it historically. The writer, probably Samuel himself, said, I need to highlight this anointing of David. So he takes a section historically that came after his conflict with Goliath and put it in chapter 16. That's the way ancient history, they wanted to think about themes and, and narratives rather than progression of events and objective facts, which is really kind of a boring way to think about history. So all that to say is, if you're reading this and you read chapter 17 and go, wait, what's going on here? That's what's going on. Verses 14 to 23 more than likely take place after David confronts Goliath. That's why the soldier says in verse 17, now I know this David, he's a man of valor, a man of war. Well, how could he have said that if David up to this point was just a shepherd? The reason being is this man saw David take out Goliath and said, he's a man of valor and war, and believe me, the Lord is with them. That's what's going on here, right? And the key phrase there is the Lord is with them. You see, the true king is not the king with the court. It's the king who is with the Lord. And Samuel's wanted to make that point very clear here. So what's going on in this verse 14? It's a lot of interpretations, basically this. We should not be surprised, given what the Old Testament teaches constantly of God desiring people to walk in His ways so that He might bless them, and to depart from His ways would mean judgment, to see a man like Saul who for the career of his life continually walked against the things of God to now be receiving judgment from God. The hand that brings blessing is the same hand that will bring judgment and we see that clearly and graphically here. But even in the midst of that judgment, let's not miss this, the sovereignty and mercy of God is seen in our passage. Did you notice that God's choice to replace Saul turns out to be also Saul's choice to relieve him? Saul is not coerced. These men make a recommendation. He says, go get David and bring him to me. The one who was unimpressive, insignificant, and ignored turns out to be the one that gets anointed and brings relief. We see something of the completeness of God's sovereignty in putting this together and pointing forward to what He planned to do in His own Son. So it should not surprise us that God would bring judgment on a person for rejecting Him. Whether that rejection is, is obvious or subtle, even if, whether that objection is with full knowledge or with ignorance, God will bring judgment on people who reject Him. This is not a sign of His, his kind of bad-natured, bad mood. This is a sign of His love. God's love will not allow the pollution of, spread, uh, pollution of sin to spread. And so when we see God's judgment, it is with, with a holy sense of trepidation. We respond, but gratitude, because that's an evidence of God's love. Because I love my children deeply, I necessarily hate anything that would harm them. And I will take anything out of their life that will bring them harm that I can. It's not because I, I stand against or hate the, the things that might bring them harm, but it's because I love them. Now, that's a limited metaphor, but you get my point. Love and anger go together. God's judgment is not a sign that He's not loving. It's a sign of His love that He will not allow the pollution of sin to spread what is surprising, though, what is surprising is that God would allow a mediator to suspend that judgment. 
And we see that clearly in verse 23, that God would allow a mediator for that judgment. Whenever the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Now, don't we wish that we could read a little bit about what's going on in Saul's life here? Couldn't we, we wish that Saul would want to find out what was the, the thing that caused his misery rather than just seek relief, that he would seek to find out what caused that misery so he could repent from it rather than just get temporal relief, but he doesn't. So God's judgment comes, but God's anointed steps in. Friends, that's the thing that's impressive here. That God's right judgment comes, but God also allows His anointed to step in to suspend that judgment. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, Peter would write, the stone that the builders had rejected, the stone that the builders had ignored, the stone that the builders found unimpressive for the work became the cornerstone. In other words, it's that architectural link that, that creates all the lines for the building and makes sure everything goes where it needs to go. He becomes the cornerstone. So God's mercy is displayed through David's small act of obedience that then becomes a picture of God's great act of deliverance. David, just seeking to obey the Lord, pictures God's coming salvation. This would be the pattern of most of David's life. We'd see that in the next chapter, chapter 17. Now, friends, we have been called to reflect God's character and plan for this world. Read Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Want to find out why we are here? We have been created to reflect God's character and His plans for this world. In the various callings and vocations we have of our lives, we are to reflect God's character in those callings and vocations. And it begins with being impressed by Him. By definition, when something leaves an impression, it shapes you. Right? There's that nuance to the word in the word impressive or an impression. By definition, what impresses us shapes us. So the question is, what impresses you? What impresses you? Is it the outward? Is it the appearance? Is it the thing that's what we call the eye candy? If that's what impresses you, nothing in Jesus would have been impressive to you. Isaiah chapter 53 says this, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. If we're always impressed by the surface, we would none of us have been impressed by Christ. But by the same token, the Lord doesn't look to any of those things that we might say are impressive either, right? He doesn't look to our actions or deeds, but He looks to the heart. Is our heart impressed with Him? Is your heart impressed by Him? That's when we get to begin to really grasp this thing called the gospel of grace. We reflect God best, not when we're trying to impress Him or others with our performance or clean slate of moral righteousness, but when, when we are amazed and impressed, not by our actions for Him, but by His actions for us. Let that impress you this week. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the reminder that we don't see like You see.
Father, we also pray that You would enable us to be able to do that very thing, and we know part of that it comes from hearing Your Word by sitting and listening and with hearts ready to obey. Lord, would You change the way that we see the world around us? Father, help us not to be impressed by the things that don't matter, but let's be impressed by the things that do. And Father, we confess that is not easy to do, and so we ask that this week You would work through Your Spirit changing us, conforming us to be like You, to love the things that You love and stand against the things You stand against. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This message titled, Impressed by God, was given by Pastor Rick Roadheaver at Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. This message is part of a series from the book of 1 Samuel. For more information and resources from Christ Community, please visit us at www.cccLH.org.